The title of this episode came really simple. And the reason it came really simple is I took it from somebody else. Plagiarism is the highest form of flattery, right? Well, it's not, I don't know if it really counts perfectly as plagiarism, but smiles for miles is one of the hashtags that La Sweat or LA Sweat uses this year in their Instagram campaign. It makes perfect sense. We're out there riding, putting in the miles, and we're having fun doing it. So let's just have some smiles for miles. Today's guest, Danny Mooreshead, is one of those people that kind of embodies the California lifestyle. It's just nothing has phased her. Nothing about this interview phased her. Nothing about the questions phased her. Nothing about the challenges that she has confronted in this life, as far as I know, have ever phased her. She approaches everything with just a happy smiley attitude. You see it in the pictures, you see it in the sprint photos, even the grimaces are kind of a smile. So I think it's perfect. Smiles for miles. It makes perfect sense for this episode. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Go to WideAnglePodium.com, become a subscriber and a supporter of this, the internet's only collection of top-tier independent cycling media. You'll go, you'll find things out about Cyclocross Radio, you'll find things out about the Grodio, about Nowhere Fast, about this show they call the Slow Ride Podcast. I don't know. I got one of these phone calls the other day. I thought it was a robo call. It turns out it was Matt, little guy Alan, inviting me to be a guest host on the Slow Ride Podcast. Oh, hilarity ensued. Check out their episode this week. I had so much fun with the guys, with Spencer and with Matt, filling in for Tim. That was my job. We are, this week, brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped. Manscaped.com is your place for everything in the best in men's grooming equipment. We've talked recently about the Ultra Smooth package. That's something that just came out. The Boxers 2.0. You've seen their promotions for the six super stylish new patterns that they have for the most comfortable boxers you're ever going to put around your waist. But also, think about it. Think about it here, guys. Think about it here, ladies. Father's Day is right around the corner. And it's about time that you think about what you are going to get the man in your life, whether it be the father of your children, the father of your fur babies, or the father to you. There is a slew of great equipment and grooming aids that you can get the dad in your life, whether it be the Lawnmower 4.0, the Weed Whacker, Refined Cologne. Whatever they've got, they've got something for the dad in your life. So go, go check out manscaped.com. Use the promo code Criterium Nation when you find what it is that you're looking for for this Father's Day and save 20% off plus free shipping. You've heard us talk about our second show sponsor before. We're going to talk about them again because I am absolutely in love with my career too. We are brought to you by Hammerhead. Hammerhead.io is their website. They are the creators and the crew too. It is a next generation, and I'm serious about this, a next generation GPS unit. It has all the things that you need if you're going on adventure riding, bike packing, getting semi lost on gravel roads this summer on some of the days when you're not out there doing the crits. But it also has the stuff that you need to hit your performance at its highest level. And the thing that they tell us about the Karoo 2 and you learn it when you get it, it's constantly being improved. It is constantly being updated. So the folks at Hammerhead are identifying what it is that can make the computer better. And this is the first computer, the first head unit that I've ever had that has literally continued to get better as I've owned it. Didn't have to do anything. Didn't have to buy anything new. All I had to do was make sure to turn it on, hook it up to Wi-Fi, and the folks at Hammerhead are making it better all the time. Hammerhead.io. Use the promo code CRITNATION, C-R-I-T, NATION, all one word, to find what you're looking for. And when you do, you will get a heart rate monitor and a free custom water bottle for using that code CRITNATION. Okay, here we go. 
We've got Danny, aka Danny the Dog, on Instagram here for the hour with you talking about her evolution in bike racing, about Lost Sweat, and about where she's going after her podium at Wilmington Grand Prix. And we're doing all of that right now. Hi, my name is Danny Morsehead. I race for two teams, actually, but right now for Criteriums, because it's summer, I'm racing for LA Sweat, and I am from Santa Cruz, California. Danny, LA Sweat, I have so many great memories uh, of LA Sweat. Like one time at Gateway Cup, LA Sweat, it was like 2019, 2018, I think it was the first year that you were on that team. You all walk into a taqueria after the final day of gateway in gold like solid gold uh rain jackets it was it was just perfect and so we need to talk about la sweat and about the style that comes with the team because there's a style that goes with the attitude of the team that just seems to match and amplify itself and you're the first person that we've had on the show who is an active la sweat rider you, your teammate, you know, now Dr. Tiffany Thomas, she's been on the show. She's one of the two timers club. She's actually been on twice, but at the time she was on, she wasn't on LA sweat. So you're the first LA sweat person. You get to lay the groundwork for us about LA sweat. Before we start talking about your personal background, can you tell us about the team that you're on about LA sweat? Sure. So the team was started, I believe it must've been eight years ago now by Kelly Sam. Um, she saw a gap in the sport where she wanted to create a race team that was fun and super highly competitive and stylish. <laughs> That's how she is. <laughs> uh, and so she created it and it's been really impressive to watch how she's grown the team through the years. I, I was not witness to the first four years of the team, but the latter four I've been a part of, uh, and it's been neat to watch it grow. So the, the team we landed with in 2019 was just such an awesome squad. We all got along so well from, from the first minute we met at our host house in Alabama. We all got along. Um, we had a fantastic season. It was, it was one of those years where you don't, you don't know anybody on the team. You're joining a new team. Um, really, none of us knew each other very well at all. And we all just ended up getting along so, so well. And we have been able to grow a lot out of that friendship when you have a team that gels together really well, it allows more time and space for other things like bringing up development riders, advocating for LGBTQ athletes, for um, the women's racing in general. Um, all of that we've been able to put our hearts into because the other stuff comes easy. We're all friendly. We're all having a great time at races. So we can put all of our energy into these other awesome avenues. One of which, as you mentioned, is our style. So we do have a lot of style. <laughs> Yeah. Can we talk about that? Because like the color scheme of the team has changed so dramatically, but it's always been like so front and center. And even if you scroll through the team's Instagram feed, which is uh, at LA underscore sweat, you know, the layout of the Instagram feed is just amazing. All the colors match. You know, it's this green and yellow this year and last year it was the full rainbow and like there's clearly an attention to detail. And if you've got enough attention to detail on something like your kit and the way that your social media works, you probably have a lot of attention to detail and how the operation functions, too. So, like, tell us about like being a part of something that's got such an attention to detail. Sure. It's an interesting thing. I think the team's the ethos of the team really started with Kelly's idea that we wanted to be a team that was consistent through the years. We didn't want to be a team that had a title sponsor one year and a new title sponsor the other year. And you had kept having to change names and change your kits up according to what logos your sponsors are giving you year after year. So she created this everlasting uh, monkey ear for the team, which is LA sweat, which she was living in LA at the time. And now none of us live in LA. So we could, Call ourselves Law Sweat, which we are starting to do. <laughs> um, maybe for the sake of transferring the name over, I should start referring to ourselves as Law Sweat throughout this podcast. So, Team Law Sweat 
has been La Sweat all through the eight years that it's been around. We have not had a title sponsor come in and bump the name around. No, there's no presented by. And that's also shown on the kits. So instead of having sponsors plaster all over your kits, we have these awesome designs, which are based off of high fashion, which is also not my area of expertise, so I won't go too far into it. Um, but it's usually based off of high fashion or some kind of really edgy, cutting edge fashion trend. <laughs> Again, not my area. Uh, and that has been the thing that has changed year to year rather than our, our sponsorship uh, presenting names and logos. Um, and that's allowed for a lot of creative freedom. And it's been a neat thing because our team is more than just our team. We're really a community of cyclists and community of just bike enthusiasts in general who have various talents to contribute. So we have people outside of the team who have contributed year after year to the design of the kit, the even building our bikes, um, to even our sponsors who are who have been with us for so long. They're, they're there to sort of contribute to the team ethos rather than to a logo on a kit. In looking at a lot of the posts, there are a certain number of hashtags that seem to predominate La Sweats ethos. And I think that it's fair to say that Kelly Sams is, is, you know, trying to create this culture that the team is a part of. And in a lot of the imagery that she's using on, on social media is, is really kind of directed toward the, towards that. So like, for example, one is hashtag smiles for miles, or there's another hashtag be different or be you. We like you, you're different, be kind. These are not things that one would typically associate with, you know, a high performance sports team. But you guys are clearly a high performance sports team because we're going to talk about wins and podiums and things like that. But with, you know, a, a social media campaign that talks about smiling and being different and being accepting and inclusive of a bunch of different, you know, not just socioeconomic, you know, but like different views on life and the way that the, you know, everybody is equal, you know, like it's a really bad question and I wish I could start over, but I've fumbled my way through it this far. So I'm just going to say like, is, does any of that make sense or am I reading way too much into social media already? No, you're totally accurate. Um, that's what we are. I mean, we are quite different from any other team. We're out here not only to race hard and have fun and be welcoming and open, but we're here to fight for women, for people who are who don't have the same access to bikes as as a lot of us did. We're here to support our uh, trans and LGBT people, and it's the the I guess you could call it like the branding of the team really reflects that, and that was definitely purposeful. One thing that I want to ask you, and this is kind of near and dear to my heart because the bike that I race on is an alloy bike. It is not a full carbon beauty, but it is an aluminum bike. You guys are on Pratt this year. So the question is, is steel real? Steel is fucking real, dude. Are we allowed to swear? You can swear all you want. Okay. Steel's fucking real. Uh, I would love to tell you the story of how these bikes came about and how I started riding them and racing them. Go right ahead. I'd love to hear it. Okay, I'm taking you back to 2018. I have a UCI Pro contract with Team 2020, and I am still in college, my last year of college. I'm riding around the streets of Providence, Rhode Island on a sponsored bicycle, carbon, of course. And a guy yells at me as I'm riding down the street one day, and he says, I'll build you a bike. And it's Max Pratt. And I didn't know it at the time. I'm like, well, who is this guy? And why is he telling me he'll build me a bike? And I tell him, okay, that's cool, weirdo, but I got this sponsorship and I, <laughs> I can't really ride anything else but these things. Um, so I finished out my season with Team 2020. And the next year I decided I wanted to be racing crits and I wanted to be racing fixed crits and track. And I talked to Max and actually he came up with the idea of putting together a fixed crit team. So he supported myself, Sam Fox, and one other woman. And we spent the season racing his bicycles. We actually launched at Mission Crit 2019, um, where I ended up placing third, which was very exciting. And from there, he just kept building and building, and we kept racing and riding, and things grew. He created a UCI cyclocross team. 
from the start, from that very first year, we had Evelyn uh, Williamson guest ride for us, and she took a couple wins. I took a couple wins. Pretty much every race I race with Evelyn, we go one, two. It's kind of the best thing ever. <laughs> Does she occasionally let you win, or do you occasionally let her win, or is it always the same? Usually what happens is we'll start racing mid-race. We'll, before the race or mid-race, we'll look at each other. We'll either make a plan if we're on the same team or if we're not on the same team we nod our heads and say, okay, let's race each other because we race a lot locally in the Bay area. And often we were the only competition with each other. So if we weren't, if we were working together, it wouldn't, wouldn't be fun for us. So that being said, the few times we've been able to race together on the same team and say a fixed crit, then we'll decide, okay, I'm leading you out. You're leading me out. And it's been pretty even across the board. She's more of a pure sprinter than me. So sometimes if it's down to a field sprint, I'd usually be the lead out rider. Um, but it's been, man, it's been so much fun racing with her over the years and smashing it locally and then going on the, the national fixed crit scene and crushing it. So the fixed crit scene is amazing. Like, you know, Dan Chabanov stayed here at my house when he was racing with Sachs, with Richard Sachs' team for DCCX. So I got to get like deep into the, or actually it was his mechanic who was staying here. So he was just, so Dan was just having drinks here, but like, regardless, like we got to go deep into Red Hook and I accidentally, and I believe it or not, I accidentally walked in on the Red Hook crit in Barcelona when I was there for a vacation with my wife. It was like happening in the parking lot of the hotel that I was staying at. And so like we, we made a whole plan to go and watch the nighttime action and it's just the most it, it it's like I, I can't even put it in words it's like cyclocross style of racing on road with a lot of features that you understand that are crits but like because it's fixed gear there's not a lot of like switching up movement in spots and places. So like you have to be very, very strategic. And when you pass like in cross, you can't just pass all the time. You have to find the the right moment. So it's like, it's very cerebral as far as a sport is concerned. Do you apply that cerebral nature from your experience with fixed crits to the ones where we're allowed to have different gears and a freewheel? Totally, totally. Fixed crits are a different beast. It's almost a smoother race. Geared crits, everyone's hitting the brakes. Fixed crits, your braking is your backpedaling. So your backpedaling is going to be smoother than you hitting it, especially a disc wheel. Um, if you're hitting a disc brake, you're going to be slowing down a lot faster. So when I first raced fixed crits, I noticed that smoothness allowed for a lot more sort of tactical and pack positioning finesse. And I took a lot of that with me into the geared crit racing. Um, my first fixed crit was actually Red Hook Milan. Oh, wow. That's huge. Yeah, it was very exciting. So I came off of that first year with Team 2020 racing some UCI stuff. And I'd gone to a couple national team track camps at the Olympic Training Center. That was really my only fixed crit or sorry, fixed bicycle riding experience was on the track uh, in 2018. And then towards the end of the year, Samantha Fox, who I've already mentioned, who I raced collegiate with, she has some friends. She had done Red Hook Brooklyn, and she had some friends in uh, in Germany who were part of the Schindelauer Gates team, and they had an extra bike, and they had an open spot, and they called me up and asked me to come out and race in Milan. So I flew out there and actually bought a $100 uh, fixie on Craigslist and rode it around <laughs> for a bit leading up because I thought maybe I should have some more experience, <laughs> which is not probably enough. But I did finish that race and I think I got I got 20 something and was sitting pretty high up in the in the pack for most of the race. So I felt great. It was awesome. It was it was really neat to go from racing mostly geared races to racing fixed races because it was so much smoother. I mean, your head is in a different spot. It's just explain the connection to the bike is it's so intimate. Every pedal stroke there's no coasting, right? So every pedal stroke is, it's really, you're relating from your brain to your pedals in every pedal stroke. Are you going faster? Are you going slower? Are you setting up for this turn? Are you setting up for that turn? Are you trying to slow yourself down so you can go on the other side of the person in front of you? It's, and it's instantaneous. So the flow state happens so much, so much faster. In geared crits, you can really get in your head. You can think too hard. You can, yeah, overthinking is just very easy to do. And in a fixed crit, 
there is no room for overthinking. There's barely any room for thinking. So you're just in flow state the whole time. And it's it's the most fun thing ever. And I'm really sad that the fixed crit scene seems to be dwindling because that's my favorite style of racing. Uh, but man, was it so much fun to have and, and how, how much has it given me? So Yeah, as far as I know, Mission Crit and Intelligentsia in Chicago are the only ones that have like a sustained fixed crit, fixed gear crit sort of scene. Do you know of any others? Um, well, we got Zuri Crit in, Zuri crit in Switzerland, <laughs> but that's, um, that's not US-based, obviously. So I'm sure there are others, and I'd love to shout them out or give them plugs, but I can't think of them at the top of my head right now. Yeah, Zurich Crit's probably a little bit too far for me to drive from DC. <laughs> yeah, Just going to say. Uh, yeah. So, but we're here to talk about you, not necessarily you on Fixies, but you as a bike racer and as a crit racer and as a, as a member of La Sweat. And, you know, in doing my research here, I found, uh, I found out that you're one of those people that I, that, that I affectionately can't stand one of those naturally talented athletic human beings who goes from, you know, being a cat four to a cat one within the course of like a year and a few days. So you went to, you went to Brown, right? Sure did. Yep. Yep. Proud graduate of the university of Brown or Brown university. How does it, how do they say that? Is it Brown University? Brown University. You can see my Kansas education did not teach me for IVs. So uh, you start off in 2016 racing at Brown. You do a few races as a C. Then the next thing you know, the end of the season, you're, you know, podium collegiate A races at, at the, uh, you know, the ECCC. God, I love the Eastern Collegiate cycling conference crit championship and then it's like off to the races for you you spend some time on the amy d foundation doing you know usa cycling pro nationals and you line up on team 2020 uh, you know a uci team by your third year into you know the cycling world how does one go from you know philly flyer collegiate c to racing at, you know, Colorado Classic within three years? Well, step one, you got to be crazy. So try that on for size. Um, <laughs> okay. So I do have a racing sport background. So I was a rower before I was a cyclist. I rode boats in high school. I was a, high, a, a junior national champion in the women's eight for, for rowing. And I was recruited to Brown University. I rode for a year and a half at the NCAA level. And it was miserable. I really did not like it. Um, I was spending a lot of time just in the winter doing erg workouts. Uh, and the workouts the coaches had us doing here were set up in a way where they wanted you to PR, like do your personal best every workout. And they had you do similar workouts week after week, which is just not sustainable. So, of course, I burned out. Uh, and I had a bike that I rode around in the summers and... Well, actually, when I was in high school, maybe I'll maybe I'll take it like two steps further back. When I was in high school, I wanted to ride my bike to school because I thought it would be a neat thing to do. It was an eight-mile ride. And I was looking on Craigslist for bicycles. My grandmother was standing behind me. She looked over my shoulder and said, oh, I have a bike that looks like that in my garage. And so we pulled it out of her garage, took it to a shop. They fixed it up, gave it to me. It was a Fuji Roubaix steel frame from the 80s. And I would ride that to high school, go to rowing practice after, and then come home and my mom would say, what was your favorite part of the day? And I'd say, I rode my bike to school. <laughs> um, so obviously I had a, a, um, an affection for cycling from the start. And then when I got to college, I had a bike that I rode on in the summers and realized quickly that rowing wasn't very fun. I actually ended up meeting the captain of the Brown cycling team who was holding a track bike at the, um, the club fair for club, club sports and club activities. I'd never seen a bike with no brakes before, so I walked up to him and asked what it was, which is ironic looking back now because I did end up racing a lot of track and still do. And he told me to quit the rowing team and bring my bike out, so I did. And as you mentioned, I raced, well, I actually ended up racing a, a race in Cs, a race, so one weekend, one race weekend in collegiate Cs, one race weekend in collegiate Bs, and then one race weekend in collegiate As. Flew myself to collegiate nationals in... Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, started the race and then woke up in an ambulance. Oh, no. So that was my 
first collegiate season. <laughs> you can't you can't just say woke up in an ambulance and not expect me to say, tell us more. What happened? All right, I'll tell you more. So I don't know what happened. I don't remember, but I, I think it was wet. So I must have slid out in on the wet ground um, and knocked my head, woke up in an ambulance. Yeah, I still don't remember exactly how I went down, but I recovered quite quickly. I highly recommend sleeping a shit ton after you get a concussion. It's great. It'll heal your brain faster than anything else. So I slept and slept. Oh, so driving from driving from Tulsa to Chicago is a bad idea on a concussion? Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Definitely don't do that. Just find a hotel or something and go sleep, sleep, sleep. <laughs> I'll remember that next time. Uh, so I did some racing that 2016 summer. I think I must have been upgraded to a Cat 3 automatically through collegiate cycling. And then the next year, 2017, was was like my, it was like my um, progression curve is is um, almost 90 degrees a year. <laughs> so I raced, my first one, two, three race was Grant's Tomb in New York City. And I was a Cat 3 at the time. So I was thinking I would do the 3-4. I talked to my coach and he said, nah, you should do the one, two, three. I did the one, two, three and I lapped the field. And then I did the Bear Mountain race, which was a really exciting story. I'd love to tell it if there's time, which I think there must be. There's always time. There's always time. I mean, like, Grant's Tomb, this is back in the day when Grant's Tomb was in March and it was always miserable. Yeah, it was very cold. Yeah, I lapped the field, but it was probably like 15 women. <laughs> no, you got it. You nailed it. It is 15 women. That's exactly what the results say. So, boom. So, two months later, try me. Two months later in May, you go to Bear Mountain. Now, now do you know how many women were in Bear Mountain? Oh, probably not many. It was also freezing cold. I mean, Grant's tomb was cold, but Bear Mountain was cold and wet. So Oof. I'm guessing it was like eight women. <laughs> you are good. Oh, it was, it eight? was eight women. Yes. Oh, look at me. See? Okay. So yeah, okay, eight so women tell are there. Us about it's Bear very Mountain. cold. Bear Mountain, albeit there being not very many women, it was a very exciting race for me because it was my first one, two, three road race, I believe. I and mean, you're the one with the page in front of you. So you can check me on that as well. <laughs> I can tell you who got second. I definitely know who got second. Bear Mountain was freezing cold. I wore this jacket, but not a rain jacket, like a regular heavy jersey jacket. And we start, Bear. if people who know Bear Mountain know that it starts with a downhill and an immediate U-turn and then you climb uphill. So I start the downhill, we turn the corner, start the climb, and I get dropped immediately. <laughs> I think three or four girls go off the front, including my friend Sam Fox, who I had raced in collegiate racing and knew from collegiate. They're off the front. I think I rode with Kira Payer for a little bit. I took my jacket off in the feed zone and it took maybe 20 pounds off my back because the thing had soaked through with water. Um, eventually dropped Kira and was alone. I think I must have been alone for two hours of this race, uh, but I was just chugging along. And then um, my left shifter stopped working. Turns out my I was using um, SRAM double tap at the time and the cable had come out of its whatever its fitting is in the shifter. So I suddenly had no front derailleur. I was stuck in the big ring. Bear Mountain has a about 15 minute stair-steppy climb. It's pretty significant. So I did that in a big ring, <laughs> but turns out it probably was to my favor because as I came over the top of it, I saw the leaders, they were up ahead. And as I came through the feed zone, my coach is on the side and he sees the leaders and he thinks it's going to be two or three minutes until I come through and I start coming blasting through and he starts point cheering and, I, and I'm and i cheering too because I, I realize I'm going to catch them and he's going, go, go. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, they're right there. Like, yeah. And it was a funny moment for all of us because of course, if you're in the race, usually you're like heads down pedaling, but I had no idea I was going to catch them. So when I saw them, I was just as excited as he was. <laughs> Uh, so I ended up catching the leader, the leaders and they had worked really hard, man. They were going, they were working so hard together. And I think I was just kind of hanging out behind them. I felt very recovered. I ended up attacking them and opening up a pretty decent gap. It was funny to roll up behind Sam, um, who is a, a good friend of mine and races for me with, with, um, Pratt racing now came up behind her and she, the look on her face was priceless. Her jaw dropped and her eyes wore wide open. She's looking at me like, how did you catch us? <laughs> I couldn't believe it though when I crossed that finish line. I went from riding alone for two hours in the pissing rain, freezing and tired, to broken front derailleur, to winning this race. It was like the most emotions I had gone through in in an experience of, in any experience in that amount of time. It went from 
oh, this is this is shitty. This is my first one, two, three road race. I literally thought, uh, maybe I'm not a good climber. Like maybe I'm not a road racer. I'll stick with crits. And then I won it, which was a huge, huge confidence boost. It was great. That was that was such a fun race. Um, and I can still say that I'm undefeated on that course because I did it as a collegiate rider as well twice and won it as well. So Bear Mountain, come at me. Although if I do it again, let's knock on wood because there's some fast people out there and <laughs> and I don't really train for road races anymore. <laughs> you you went through the entire cyclist arc in that one race from yes. <laughs> I'm not a good climber to I'm a crit racer to well maybe I am a good climber like oh, yeah. I can do road races too. Like that yeah, is the entire funny. arc. Here's I mean the like, other thing that happened in that race that was significant. I do not drink coffee. Coffee makes me go crazy. It hurts my tummy. It tastes good. I like coffee. I just can't do it. So I'm not, I'm very sensitive to caffeine because I have almost no caffeine on a daily, day-to-day basis. That race, my friend was in the feed zone handing me bottles. Little did I know he was putting caffeinated mixed drink in those bottles. So the whole drive home after I had won this race and gone through all those emotions, I was like buzzing and chittering and it wasn't just from the wind. It was because I was highly caffeinated as an individual who usually has absolutely no caffeine. So I still use that uh, to this day. Um, I'll have caffeine only on race days. It's only an issue when we have nighttime crits that are parts of series because then it's you're racing, it's whatever, 5 p.m. And I have 100 milligrams of caffeine in my body. I'm not going to go to sleep until 3 in the morning. So I have to be pretty careful about it. But it is quite useful to be someone who's sensitive to caffeine and can utilize that. <laughs> it's a drug. It's a drug. Yeah, I know one that I have every single day and I look forward to it like it's nine o'clock now or nine forty five now. And I'm like, oh, I get to have coffee in 12 hours. <laughs> and you do you do seem to enjoy the race series is like you are one of the few people that is that I know of who's done North Star like the last edition of North oh, Star, including the famous Stillwater Criterium. Uh, with the, you know, like super wall that comes off the the river right there. And then coming forward in 2019, you just hit all the series is, you know, you did Tulsa Tough, you did the Oklahoma City Pro-Am, you did Gateway, you did part of Intelligentsia, the fixie part of Intelligentsia. You know, do you find that these crit series are things that you enjoy? I find them enjoyable because I find them enjoyable because I love racing crits and I want to race as many crits as possible. Not necessarily because it's a bunch of them shoved together multi-day. Um, I do think I do better over time in those races. Maybe I fatigue um, slower over time. I don't even know what the what the biomechanics of that would be. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much just because I love racing crits. Um, and that was something I figured out after my. 2018 season with 2020, I did all that road racing. And at the end of that year, I did the, I flew out to uh, Milan in, I believe it was October, raced Red Hook, Hook Milan, flew back. I got, I, I got asked to guest ride with Aventon with Esther Walker. Uh, so I flew to San Antonio for like 24 hours, <laughs> very short trip, uh, ended up winning the Red Bull last stand which was so much fun. And I remember calling my coach after that and saying, oh my God, you know, I just did this whole season of UCI racing. I got to race in Australia in January. I did all of these amazing races, which are just so cool that I got to have those in my repertoire. But the most fun I've had all year was racing these fixed crits. I think I want to do more crits. And he said, go for it. So I searched for a crit team. I found LA Sweat. And the next year we were off to the races. And I did all of those ones you just mentioned. They were, they were so much fun. Yeah, how this is one of my favorite questions to ask people because the answers are so varied. How did you find La Sweat? Like, how do how do how do teams and riders, you know, like get into a relationship? Because this has clearly been a long-term relationship for you and the team. And it's one that I'm guessing is gonna continue on for years to come because of you know, the way that you talk about it and the way that the other women who are a part of the team talk about it, like everybody seems to just absolutely love this team. But that starting point, is there like a meet cute moment where like you longingly look across the road and you see all of these women wearing the same kit and you're like, oh, that could be me. Sure. So I think you really get to know what you want by doing things that show you what you don't 
like. So I did that UCI season and decided I don't want to be a stage racer. I don't want to be training. I just graduated from college that year too. So I was thinking, I want to work a real job. I want to make some money. I don't want to be spending all my time bike racing and living out of a, I don't know where I would live. I don't really, I wanted to support myself and be independent. Um, so I knew that van down by the river. Yeah, exactly. So I knew that I really liked crits and I knew that they would fit my lifestyle. So I wanted to find a team that was fully supported. I did not want to be paying my way through the racing, but I also wanted a team that was competitive enough that was traveling to these big races. I wanted a team that I wanted a team that had a, a awesome team atmosphere. I wanted to be friends with my teammates and I was looking around at all these crit teams and LA sweat was the first one that popped out and they were, they really exemplified all of those qualities that I was seeking. So I met with Kelly and signed a contract and that's how it went. I want to talk about the end of that year, the end of 2019, because there's a, there's a specific race that seems to be the race where you emerged for the first time. Like you've had good results up until then. And especially in the crit like world, you've had some, some pretty decent wide angle podium style results throughout the course of 2019, but September 1st, of 2019. So that is gateway cup. That is the hill. And it's, it's kind of an iconic race within the confine of gateway cup because it's in this little neighborhood in, in the South side of, uh, St. Louis. It's an Italian neighborhood. The streets kind of the, the houses along the course kind of empty and everybody's having a party as the riders are racing the women's race being on a Sunday is towards evening. The men's race is right thereafter. So like everybody's gotten an opportunity to really pregame by the time that you get to that race, you ended up coming in third that day. The two women who beat you, Sam Schneider, who now races for Legion and Olivia Ray, who earlier this year was on, you know, a world tour team in rally or human powered health but the women who are behind you in that race, Carolyn Bauer, who's a UCI pro now, Melanie Wong, who races for Wolfpack, Alexi Costa, uh, Rachel Langdon, Rachel Canning, Madison Kelly, Harriet Owen, who is on Wolfpack, the sprinter extraordinaire got 12th in that race. This is a, I mean, Starla Tedegren, who won USA crits two years in a row. Like this is a hitters list of just the best bike racers in the country. And there you are for the first time taking a step onto the podium by yourself in the biggest crit to date that you had done. Tell me how does that make you feel thinking back on that race? Oh man, there's so much that comes up from that. It was a PRT race. I remember I got drug tested. <laughs> so I peed in a cup after that race. That's quite <laughs> memorable. I think it was my first time peeing in a cup. But it really makes sense to me when I think about my previous few seasons. So you probably have it up there. I think I raced something like 45 races in 2017. I couldn't get enough bike racing at that point. It was a lot. You're nailing it. Do you have your road results page just open and now you're just playing with No, me? no. But you know, I've looked at it. Everyone's looked at their own road results a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> But I, yeah, it's, I mean, those round numbers are pretty easy. 45 is pretty easy to remember. Um, yeah, 45 races, I feel like is a lot. The other seasons have probably been somewhere in the twenties. Uh, 45 is a lot of races. So I just couldn't get enough of bike racing that year, but not only did I race road calendar, if you pull up cross results, you'll probably see that I also raced some cyclocross at the end of 2017. Then I went to, in January, I went to Australia. So I went straight from 45 races of summer racing calendar to a season of cyclocross to January in Australia racing world tour races. Then I raced a collegiate season and a UCI season. And then I raced all the way through October, found fixed crits, decided I loved the sport again because fixed crits were so much fun. Uh, decided I wanted to do crits after that. And by that time I was in a giant fucking hole. <laughs> I had ridden myself so hard those last two years. There were times I remember pedaling up this hill in California and I thought something was wrong with my bike. I thought my bottom bracket was like sticky or there was a bolt too tight or my chain was 
not something was wrong because I was pedaling actual squares. It was your it was your power meter. Your power yes, meter was something off. Something like that. My power meter might have been off, but you know what? I was going up this hill so slow. It felt like I was pedaling through sand. And it was because I had just raced so much. And that was in early 2019 when I felt like this. So it took the entirety of 2019 to pedal my way out of this hole, which involved a lot of resting, a lot of doing exactly what my coach told me tells me to do. He know, Mike, I've had the same coach my entire cycling career, and he knows that I came from a rowing background. He knows I burned out, and he knows my limits. So he was able to show me quite clearly that I had gone too far. So I took all of 20, 2019 to pedal my way out of that hole. So by gateway, I was on form. <laughs> so I felt good. And I remember calling my coach mid-gateway, and I'm like, oh, my God, I feel good. I'm, I'm, I'm racing well. I'm sitting at the front. Like, it's going really well. Uh, and that... Sprint at Gateway is a long sprint, which suits me. So it, and it's a long downhill sprint. I don't even remember how it played out, but I remember I thought I was going to get second and Sam Schneider pit me at the line and I did not even know she was coming. So uh, flash forward to 2022 after a season of getting pipped by Skylar Schneider at the line. <laughs> I know now you throw your bike no matter what. <laughs> you never know. But yeah, that so that was a really exciting result for me. And Oddly enough, I look back now and I, it makes sense. Like it's not something that I look at and I think, oh, it was so surprising. And it was, it, I mean, it's for sure it gave me confidence at the time, but to look back on it, I, I think, yep, that's exactly, that makes sense with, I was in a hole and I pedaled out of it and I got that result and it was exactly what I needed to show me. Look, you got to take some time off. You got to rest. You got to have an off season and then you're going to come back and you're going to hit it. And another thing that came out of that race, which was actually probably a good thing, even though it's a, it was so sad at the time. The day after that race, I forget the Gateway Cup names, but the fourth day. Benton Park. The Benton Park race, 2019. I came out of the last corner. I don't know if I was first or second wheel. And I started sprinting and I pulled out of my pedal. And I felt like I was going to do very well at that race. I won't say when, because you never know. But I thought I was going to do really well in that sprint. And it all came crashing down. I didn't actually crash, so it didn't come crashing down. It came to a very slow, slow down. <laughs> in a matter of seconds when my <laughs> foot pulled out of my pedal. And that was the last race of the season. So now I had a whole off season to think about that one moment. What would have happened? What would have happened? I'm training. I'm thinking, could I have done it? Could I have won that race? Would that have been the big race for me to win that year? Um, and then 2020 happened. So I didn't get to find out. And then 2021 happened and it all made sense again. It all came back together. I felt like I was racing very well. Um, and now we're in 2022 and the confidence is there and my training has been quite specific this year because I found out what my weakness was last year, which was, <laughs> which was my, it was just my pop. I was coming out of these, I was positioning well and coming out of these corners um, with a ton of speed. And then I'd start my sprint next to someone like Skylar Schneider and they'd just get a gap on me. They'd just jump me a little bit and then we'd hold each other to the rest of the way to the line. And I'm calling my coach and I'm like, what's going on? He's like, it's your jump. You need to work on your jump. So that's what we've been working on this year. And now I just gave all my cards away to everybody who's listening to this. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's the best thing. So like, you know, you know, here's my football analogy. I've used this once before on the show. So people who are fans of the show who can reach back, uh, years in, into the files, will know my, my power sweep explanation for the Green Bay Packers. And during the uh, Vince Lombardi era, the power sweep was the big move that that was his play. And it's a, it's not even a very difficult play to run. It's a running play where the, there's an eye formation and, you know, there's a fullback and the halfback. The halfback's going to get the ball. It's a handoff and the fullback's going to knock people out of the way and the halfback's going to get five yards. Whatever it happens to be. It's a very simple play to run. Everybody knew they were going to run it Nobody could stop them doing it because they were just so darn good at executing. So it doesn't matter if everybody knows what your play is. If you're really, really good at executing, you know, Skylar Schneider, for example, or Kendall Ryan, they're exceptionally good at executing that plan, whatever their plan happens to be. So like, go right ahead, tell everybody what you're going to do and then go ahead and do it. And that's even better when you win and everybody knows how you're yeah, going to do totally it. That, yeah. That's like, oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm serious <laughs> now. But, we got to talk we got to talk about 2022 cuz we have to talk about Wilmington which not a lot of people hear about Wilmington it used to be one of the big NRC or NCC crits because it was part of this chain of crits that would happen on the east coast so you had you know Rochester Twilight 
and then you would do Wilmington and then you would do bike jam. Then you would do armed forces, Somerville's in the, in the mix there. And it was just, you could park yourself in the mid Atlantic Northeast and you could just run all of these crits in a row in the month of May and June. And you got a lot of racing. Some of those races have shifted around. Some of those races like, you know, bike jam are no longer there. So, you know, things have kind of lost a little bit of their convenience, but the luster is still definitely there with Wilmington. And so in keeping with what is now our tradition, I don't know how many times I have to do this in a row for it to be tradition. This will now be the second show in a row. We are going to put two minutes on the clock and I am going to do the fastest two minutes in crit racing. Last time I did it in three minutes and nine seconds. So I will do a full recap of the Wilmington Grand Prix in under two minutes. So are you ready for this one? Okay. Okay, here we go. Two minutes starting now. So the Wilmington Grand Prix is a 1.66 kilometer or one mile long race held in Wilmington, Delaware. Shocking and surprising, Wilmington, Delaware is a city and not just a giant filing cabinet where everybody comes to file their articles in corporation for a company. It is a very complicated race. It's an eight-corner figure eight style race. But the problem is, is that it's in on a river bluff. And so part of it's down, part of it's up and almost all of it, six of the corners are within like two blocks of each other. And then the rest of it's two long straightaways with a teeny tiny narrow alley like way in between making them come back together. The women's race happens first in the day. For this particular occasion, the women's race was mostly dry. The men's race later in the day was absolute slop fest. For the women, it was a pretty decently sized field. About 30 women started. And uh, it looks like about 15 finished on the first la uh, on the lead lap, which makes it one of those races of attrition. But it's not like a race where everybody's jumping away all the time. This version of it, shock of all shocks, Paige Kostanecki from ButcherBox is constantly and consistently off the front, throwing attack after attack, but it's not enough to decide the race. 16 women end up on the first or the final lap. So you have to figure out what's going to happen next. It ends up being a pretty tight group sprint coming out of that third and four or the third, the sixth and seventh or the seventh and eighth corners where you, Danny, you're the one coming out of the final corner by yourself. And then you've got a long false flat up to the finish. Regrettably, Colleen Gullick, regrettably for you, Colleen Gullick from Team Skyline takes the win. You finish second and Stephanie Holomack of Philly Bike Expo finishes in third. On the men's side, it is a UCI man who comes away with the win and uh, further evidence of the podcast bump, Scott McGill from wildlife generation wins it with Danny or from project 412 and Taylor Warren of CS Velo coming in third, the men's race a little bit more spicy than the women's race in the sense that only 11 guys finish with the main group. And then it's a lot of stragglers. So there was a lot of attrition in that race. So two minutes and 15 seconds. I tried. Almost got it. I'm going to work on that. But <laughs> the course, talk about the course. It is hard. This is not the four corner flat crit. It definitely is not. I did not realize it had eight corners. I guess I didn't count them. <laughs> All I know is there are a lot of them. Uh, man, I love a technical course. It's such a fun course. The straightaways are just enough to keep it from being a technical course that allows a breakaway, which is actually probably the perfect course for me because I like a field sprint, but I also really like a technical course. So in that way, it was, you're not guaranteed a field sprint, but you're, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to have a field sprint, but it's also technical enough to keep it fun, to keep it fast, to keep it interesting. So really, really a perfect course for me. And with eight corners, well, it's not just eight corners. I mean, eight corners is a lot in any way, shape or form. But it's eight corners with elevation down and elevation up. And what I didn't convey as as sharply as I should have is that those first six corners happen within the first quarter of a mile, basically, or first third of a mile of that race. And it's down, sharp right-hand corner, one more sharp right-hand corner, back up. And so you've got all this speed and positioning becomes a big issue and being able to hold your line and hold your, you know, hold your speed becomes a huge issue because even when you get up onto the straightaway that heads towards corner, corner seven and eight, you know, that 
space in between seven and eight. That is that still a really like narrow street? It is a very narrow street, and there is a a secret sketchy line off to the left on that last <laughs> that last stretch before the uh, final the final straightaway. Um, it's a very quick corner, and it's an uphill corner. Um, it's a downhill into an uphill before the straightaway finish. So if you play your cards right, you can c- carry your speed into the downhill last two corners care and keep that speed around this sketchy outside line, where, line, which I don't even know if it's legal, but you you have to go around two bollards <laughs> and then cut back into the course and take this, the turn at the top before the last turn has um some bricks in it. So if you take this line, it actually sets you up really nicely for this turn. So you're not turning awkwardly over these bricks. Um, so that was the line I ended up taking last lap. Um, it's not a standard line. No one else took it the whole race. But I ended up coming into. Should I just relay my my last lap here? <laughs> I was gonna say like it used to be the sidewalk was the fast line through that that corner, like the the gutter up into the sidewalk almost was the fastest line, and like that they, they I don't know if they ever finished doing construction in downtown Wilmington because it seemed like that corner was constantly under construction and constantly being repaired, but like. It is a long distance from the bulk of the figure eight to that final two corners. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's very technical in the beginning with those first, whatever, five corners. And then it's kind of just a big straightaway into another two very technical corners that are almost one corner, depending on how sketchy you want your line to be. (laughs) And in the men's race where it was you know, pouring rain. It had to be a very interesting experience for Scott and company when they came through it the last time. But dial it back for us to like three laps to go or two laps to go. So about two miles from the finish. I know that there's some action that I left out in that recap because I wanted you to fill in some more detail for us about how we get to the point where you come out of corner eight in the lead sprinting for your life. Sure. So I positioned myself quite well the whole race. I don't think I ever was further back than maybe fifth wheel, um, which especially on a wet course, that's what I like to do. I don't want to be behind all the bullshit. And in that course, I mean, in that race, there were only 30 women, you said, so there's not going to be a whole lot of bullshit. But in a race like with 100 women in it, uh, you don't want to be any further back than 15 wheels. Um, that's just my advice. So, you know, take it or leave it. <laughs> uh, but I ended up second wheel through the last two or three laps. Um, there was a, a rider on the front who was pushing it just hard enough to keep anyone from really attacking around us. I was sitting on their wheel and just before those last two corners, we had a bit of a swarm. So I think a Lux rider and a um, Skyline rider and some other riders came around us, around me in the the first first position rider who was kind of towing us around the last lap just before that turn. So we entered the second to last turn as a little group and I had a ton of speed in that turn and I didn't want to hit my brakes coming up behind those those riders in front of me. And as a sprinter in my mind, I'm thinking, don't tap the brakes, don't lose your speed. Don't tap the brakes, don't lose your speed. Keep your speed, keep your speed, keep your speed. And so to keep my speed, I took that bollard line. <laughs> the line around the uh, the two poles in the road. And there was also a hay bale set up there. Um, took that line and it ended up dropping me in front of everyone, which was great, except for I did not know that was going to happen. I did not plan to be the first out of the corner, especially on that long of a sprint. But I also didn't want to lose all my speed. So, you know, you you pick your battles and I picked keep the speed sprint for 45 seconds. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I ended up coming out of that last corner first and I just put my head down and I started sprinting and then I looked up and this, the finish line was still like 300 meters away. It felt like that. Maybe it was less. It felt like it was very far away. So I, I, uh, I ended up, um, I ended up getting passed by one rider towards the end, but I was pretty happy with that after sprinting for that long. I, I really thought I was going to die. I mean, I didn't think this at the time, but looking back, I, there was a high chance that I could have died out completely and been passed by five riders. So pretty happy that I was able to keep such a long sprint for second and was so stoked that Stephanie came in third. She's an awesome rider, uh, a friend, and I was very excited to see her come in right behind me. So 
that's how it played out in the end. So if Strava is to be believed, the exit to the corner is at 22 meters above the, the Delaware River, which is zero. And the finish line is at 31 meters. It's a slight incline. And when I say slight, it looks like it averages about 2% over that period, over that distance of about uh, somewhere around 400 meters, because it is, you know, five city blocks or four city blocks. So that corner is on Fifth Street and the start finish line is on Ninth. And so like having done this race a bunch of times and having suffered through that that stretch a bunch of times, you know, you can see the finish line from right where you are. The, the problem is, is that there's a lot of ground for you to cover coming out of that corner, getting to that finish line. Where in the process from 5th Street to 9th Street did you go, uh-oh, this is not a good idea. I probably should have waited a half a half a step longer. Oh, man, it was probably halfway through. So I, st- I got out of the saddle, kicked it, kicked it hard, head down tossing the bike side to side. I know there's no one in front of me. So I look up to see how far the finish line is. And I'm not sure exactly how far, I don't know at what moment I looked up, but when I looked up, I thought, Oh, this is a little bit too early. So I ended up sitting down and trying to do the track sprinter thing of sitting and just absolutely grinding at like 800 Watts, (laughs) uh, grinded for as long as I could. And then as soon as the skyline rider started, Coming up on my side, I tried to stand up out of the saddle again, um, but was just totally gassed at that point. But you know what? Before the race started, I was talking with my teammates about what our goals were, and I told them I'd be very happy with the podium. So I was pretty happy with the podium. And considering the last time I did that race was in 2017, as a must have been a cat three, <laughs> uh, I felt pretty good about where I'd come from. Um, the time I did in 2017 was pretty funny too, because it was my first big crit, but the day before, uh, I had done a race at the rent, which is a little training crit area in Connecticut. And that's a nighttime race. So I, Friday night I did this race in Connecticut and then my team, team e-race, this was my trade team in 2017. Do we call them trade teams? Sure. My trade team. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was, I think we called it trade team because I was also racing for my school. Um, so I was on this team, team e-race and it was the team, my coach DSing it. So he decided to take a group of us to this crit at the rent in Connecticut and then drive us overnight in an RV to Wilmington, Delaware. So I got, I got, I slept in a, uh, in an RV on my way to Wilmington. Um, and the rent was a whole fun story in itself as well. It was one of my first races with actual teammates and I'll put air quotes around teammates because there were maybe two of us. And I went off the front in that training. I guess it was a real crit, but it felt like it was on the training crit grounds, but I went off the front at this crit with Ellen Noble, who was a name that I knew. And I didn't know a whole lot of racers back then. I was very new to the sport, but everybody knows Ellen. (laughs) And I found myself in a breakaway with her and it was sweet. And then I, uh, I beat her in the sprint that night. So that was my pre Wilmington uh, baptism, which was getting Ellen Noble uh, ripping my legs off in a breakaway and then somehow just bike throwing to edge her out in the sprint, driving overnight in an RV, waking up in a Walmart parking lot, racing my first big crit as a one, two, three, and I guess hanging on. <laughs> so I hung on. So no matter what was going to happen in that race, I was like, I'm, as long as I do better than I did in 2017, five years ago, like that'll, that'll solidify my progression through this sport. So I feel like my progression has been solidified. The hard work has paid off. Um, years of training and racing have shown me that, yes, you can go from a cat three getting 20th in your first big crit to a cat one podiuming this, this same, very same crit on a technical course with a little bit of wet pavement and competition that looks a little less scary than it did five years ago. So where do you like, where do you go from here? What's on tap for this year? Um, you know what? Don't answer that question yet. Cause you just said something that got me really interested and I hate when things get me really interested because then I have to go back and delete other things. But, um, (laughs) Do you still get scared of your competition? Do you get intimidated by them? 
Oh my gosh, that is such an interesting question. So I, when I came into the sport, I had a very quick rise, I guess you could say, compared to some people. There are other people who, of course, rise through the sport at a much greater speed than I do. Or but So I came into the sport with uh, a lot of strength as a rower and ended up <clears throat> progressing very quickly. So I didn't know any of the names at these races. I remember Marlias Mejias at Wilmington 2017 because she ended up being my teammate in 2018. And I thought, oh, I recognize that name. Now when I go, I pretty much know everybody on the red list. And if I don't know their name, I'm not super worried about them. <laughs> uh, and because I know all of them, and a lot of them are friends, it's it's almost, I guess the intimidation factor never was there and then never developed because as I started racing against these people, they became friends. And now when I race a race like Tulsa and every big name is on the list, that's exciting for me. I get to put myself up against these women who have been racing for whatever, 10 years. I don't know how long Skylar Schneider's been racing. A shit ton of time, lots of time. And that's exciting. I get to test myself against them. And they're big names, yeah, but like when they're racing, it elevates the sport. It's fun. It's hard. It, it makes me a better racer. Um, I'm actually experiencing this thing now where when I race locally, that is the most nervous I am because I know I should be doing well at these races, if not winning them. And I show up and I'm driving to these races and I'm thinking, oh man, if I'm driving home from this race and I didn't win it, I am going to be so mad at myself. And then I'm sitting on the start line and I'm so freaking nervous because I know I should win this race. And then I get on the start line at Tulsa and I'm racing 110 women. And I'm thinking, fuck, yeah, let's go. Let's see what happens. Uh, and that's been really interesting for me to deal with. Um, it, I just talked to my coach about it and he said, you know, it's good to have a little bit of nervousness. Like you always want to have the nerves. He was saying what his last race in 2016, he was comparing heart rates at the start line with his friends and uh, or his teammates. And they had their heart rates up. They're like, oh, my heart rate's 115. What's yours? Oh, it's 130. What's yours? And he looks at his and he said, oh, it's 78. And that's when he knew he probably shouldn't be pinning a number on anymore. <laughs> so I guess the nerves are a good thing. But yeah, the, the, there are different kind of nerves on the, on the, the uh, local home courses than they are on those national courses. And I have fun in both situations, but it's a different kind of fun. The national ones, the pressure's a little bit off of my shoulders. It's kind of easier to feel like, okay, if I don't do well, it's, that's gonna, I'm going to be okay with that. And on the local scene, if I don't do well, there's a part of me that says, what, how, how, do, how could you let that happen? What's going on? So there's a little look into my, the mental pressure I'm putting on myself that I've been trying to work through. If anybody knows a good sports psychologist, <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't actually think I'm at the point yet where I need a sports psychologist, but it's been interesting to talk about and to notice, to feel those feelings and kind of talk about them. It, help, it helps me move them through. So I know that I, I, I have them. Um, and it feels pretty, it's like a unique feeling to be sitting on start lines that are of these huge races and just being like, yes, this is where I belong. And then racing these smaller races and going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> Your next step up for you is going to be, you know, Rochester, which is happening this weekend. Your episode will air after the Rochester race. So we could you know, do some great predictions, but I don't like betting on anything that I participate in. So I'm not going to make you do that either. But, you know, after Rochester, you know, Armed Forces, Tulsa, Nationals, you know, where are we going to see you next? What's the big focus for you for the remainder of this year? I will be happy if I can stand on some boxes this year. And I've already gotten to do that at Wilmington, which is great. And I'm just going to keep that same goal. I'm going to tell my teammates I'll be happy with podiums. But will you really be happy with podiums? No. <laughs> so, so give us the straight truth here. You want to win bike races. There is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I want to win bike races. Definitely. Yeah. But I, there's, there's a, you, there's a, if I lose them, it means I'm learning. And if, if I'm getting to the point where I'm winning all these races, what fun is that? So, of course, yeah, I want to stand on podiums. I don't want to stand on the top step, but I definitely want to stand on every other step too. <laughs> what are what are some of your favorites? The bigger, the better. Tulsa. I have never had as much fun as I've had at Tulsa Tough with over 100 of the strongest, most badass women taking corners at 35 miles per hour, shoulder to shoulder with crowds cheering five deep around the entire course. It's just a whole different atmosphere. I think that's something else that comes with that the local racing. When you're racing locally, there aren't that many people. The crowds are there, but it's just a few people who know and they kind of know the expectation, they know the outcome of the race. 
And that's where I put pressure on myself to deliver that outcome. But at a race like Tulsa, you have no idea what's going to happen. And I listen to your guys' prediction podcast. I'd be surprised if like one of your Tulsa predictions comes true. <laughs> Although, you know what, with Legion, like hiring every world tour rider on the scene now, that might change. <laughs> uh, they did sweep everything last year, so maybe they'll sweep everything again. Um, but you never know. Like, that's the thing. You absolutely never know. So yeah, it's the, yeah, it's the, the excitement of not knowing what the heck is going to happen. Is it going to be a break? Is it going to be a sprint? Who's going to lead who out? Where are you going to end up? Um, and it's the atmosphere. It's the insanely charged atmosphere of Tulsa that makes it so much fun. Is there another race I could gush about in this way? Probably not. I really like Boise. Love San Rafael. That's actually my kind of my hometown race. So that's been great to, to race in the past. Other races that are fun. I think I covered the big ones. I don't know if anything else really compares. Well, we will be out there cheering for you and right alongside you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Of course, yeah. And the Gateway was fun too. I wanted to, I feel like I should plug Gateway because it's such a fun race and it has that like barbecue vibe party. But that's all I need to say about it. That's, those are the races. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com, your source for the full bevy of shows that are available there. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Next week, we have a guest that is going to shock and surprise all of you. Liam White from ButcherBox Racing. The Aussie himself, he's kind of been a mystery, kind of an enigma wrapped in a mystery maybe. Here in the American Crit scene, we get him for the hour to talk about who he is, where he's going, and what the team is all about. Plus, we recap Joe Martin and Rochester. So join us here again next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. <laughs>